A serial killer who kills on full moons. An ex-FBI agent who knows how to get in killers' heads. And a locked-up ally who might be crazier than them all. All this can only mean one thing. We're comparing Manhunter and Red Dragon on this episode of Retro vs. Remake. I'm Reggie Parker. And I'm Dan Bulick. Welcome to another episode of Retro vs. Remake. remake. <laughs> Alright, this is the series where we compare films and their remakes. Join us as we ask the question, should this film exist? Today's films are Manhunter and Red Dragon. Manhunter, released in 1986, starring William Peterson, Dennis Farina, Kim Greist, Joan Allen, Brian Cox, Stephen Lang... Tom Noonan, and a minor appearance by Chris Elliott. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Directed by Michael Mann. You might know him for such movies as Heat, Collateral, The Insider's a really good one. Screenplay by Michael Mann. Music by Michael Rubini and The Reds. Red Dragon, released in 2002, starring Ed Norton, Anthony Hopkins, Rape Fines, Harvey Keitel, Emily Watson, Mary Louise Parker, and... Philip Seymour Hoffman, directed by Brett Ratner. You might know him from Rush Hour, X-Men The Last Stand, and uh, Sexual Harassment. Uh, yes, uh, don't want to get too serious here, but let's just address the elephant in the room. Yes, Brett Ratner has been accused of sexually abusing some women in Hollywood. Just to be fair to the victims, I think we should just mention that really quickly. And yeah. no, it's not really going to affect our verdict. We'd like to separate the art from the man. And it's a movie, it's a collaborative process, a lot of people worked on it, so it's not really fair to judge all the hard work they put on just because of what one man did. That's uh, all I want to say about that. <laughs> and and moving say, on. I'll say this, not oh. to trivialize the, uh, the matter, uh, I will hold him accountable for X-Men Last Stand. So. Yeah, <laughs> that you can judge him on, <laughs> for, absolutely, for this cool. movie. Screenplay by Ted Talley, music by Danny Elfman. And I do want to say that both movies are based on the 1981 book by Thomas Harris of, this, of the name Red Dragon. All right, Reggie, let's jump right in. What is your first experience with either film? You know, I thought I had experience with uh, the remake, and it just turned out it wasn't true. <laughs> um, I was thinking of Hannibal Rising, which is, is not, not really anything we should discuss today. <laughs> but... Um, no, I've, I've never seen Manhunter. I wasn't really even aware of Brian Cox's uh, take on the Lecter, you know, Hannibal Lecter. Like I mentioned, I thought I saw this remake, but I saw other Hannibal things because this franchise is uh, far-reaching, and there's a lot of products of different, um, just say, uh, quality in the Hannibal universe. <laughs> Interesting. I had seen the remake before. I saw it after uh, Silence of the Lambs and the Hannibal movie, so I was familiar with it, but I hadn't probably seen it since i saw it and that was like the early 2000s when it kind of was released and the original i hadn't seen ever i knew about it i knew brian cox was hannibal that's about all i knew so i was pretty interested in checking this one out just to see how similar they were since they're two different titles manhunter and red dragon all right well these films are very similar i love i love when that happens because then i don't have to go into vague descriptions of these characters i could teach you the full names which is great so uh 
Before our comparison, let's do the synopsis. William Graham is an ex-FBI agent. He retired after capturing Hannibal Lecter, which took a toll on him physically and mentally. There is now a new serial killer on the loose, the Tooth Fairy, and only Will can stop him before the next full moon. Will has the unique ability to truly get into the killer's minds, even at the cost of his own sanity. Will promises his wife and son that we will only work in a limited capacity, but the more he uncovers, the bigger his role gets. He eventually has to go to Dr. Lecter for help. This is a double-edged sword, as Lecter does help Will, but he helps the killer too. He gives the killer the address of Will's family. Luckily, Will and the police are able to secure his family before anything happens. While this is happening, journalist Lowndes is pestering Will for a story. Will eventually uses Lowndes to draw out the killer, but it backfires, and Lowndes is kidnapped and set on fire. Meanwhile, the killer, a Francis Dollarhide, actually finds love. He starts developing a relationship with his blind co-worker, Reba. Things seem to be going well, but then go sour as Dollarhide believes she is cheating on him. So he kidnaps her. Meanwhile, Will and the police finally realize the way the killer chooses his victims. He works at a place that edits their home movies. Will and the police know Francis Dollarhide is the killer. Dollarhide has the next victim lined up, but he turns his sights on Reba instead. The police show up to stop Dollarhide. The films end differently, but ultimately, Dollarhide is killed, Reba survives, and Will goes back to his family. The end. Yeah, the main difference between these two films really is that ending. I'm sure we'll get to that. But I think this is going to be a very character-based uh, comparison episode because everything is so similar. <laughs> what better place to start then with our main character, our William Graham? We've got William Graham played by William Peterson in the original uh, Manhunter, and we have Ed Norton in the remake. The motivation is the same, but I think it's sort of that portrayal. It's all the stuff between the margins is where I think we're going to find the differences. When you really break it down, I mean, Graham is kind of a very straightforward character. It's like, I'm an ex-FBI agent who encountered the serial killer Hannibal Lecter, and it left scars on him, you know, both literally and, you know, mentally as well. I'm going to say off the jump, just to kind of just dive into this conversation, I think that William Peterson... Clearly, like, the way he portrays Graham shows more of the mental effects of mm -hmm. the Hannibal Lecter uh, encounter. Whereas I feel like Ed Norton, it's there, it's, you know, talked about in the film, but I never really felt to the same level that he was as scarred and hurt mentally as uh, Peterson played it. Yeah, I agree. Not just from his experience with Lecter, obviously that carries a lot of weight, but, like, just... The methods he has to go to to get in the killer's mind just you could see that it takes a toll on him and it's not only affecting him but it kind of affects his family more you get more of his family time in the uh, manhunter so um he seems like he's got this burden but he knows he needs to go through with it in order to do the right thing to save people ed norton doesn't seem like he's really struggling with anything Either anything that Lecter really did to him or just like um, trying to find this killer now. There's not really any toll being taken on him. So much as William Peterson's portrayal. It, it definitely felt like, man, this guy is just really like <laughs> hurting himself to do the right thing here. So, um, yeah, definitely two different portrayals. Yeah, like you said, you see more of the family dynamic in the original. And we'll get to what kind of replaces that in the remake. But because you see this close connection, especially with his wife, and the fact that really, you, you get it in both films, but more so in the original, she's really saying, 
you shouldn't do this. <laughs> and, he, mm-hmm. and he knows that, that that's the case. And he knows that really it's his own sort of mental capacity to handle this type of case. And as you mentioned, the deaths that he's going to have to go through to try to catch his killer. He knows that it's going to be a huge strain on him mentally. And Ed Norton just, to me, it feels like, you know, a guy who wants to do the right thing. And like you mentioned, it's just, I, I'm not seeing that same conflict there at all. And, and it, it definitely, as you go through the film, you see that William Peterson's Graham is in actually a really precarious situation by diving into this, this criminal's mind. Like he, he's risking his own mind to solve the crime. Whereas Ed Norton, you know, he's risking his family's well-being. He's risking his own life. But I, I just don't, I'm not getting that. I'm going down a dark path. I'm just not getting that yeah. from Norton. Another thing that William Peterson does a lot more than Ed Norton's character, he sort of has these um, one-on-one conversations with them. Right? He's yeah. talking to them. He's like, this is what you did, you son of a bitch. Yeah, you enjoyed yeah. it, you yeah. son of a bitch. It's a little campy, <laughs> but it's it really does show you that he can really start to understand these, these serial killers. He's really trying to get into their minds. So it's a little over the top. It's a little bit of that easy cheese, but... Um, I don't know, it, after a while, it just started drawing me in. It's like, yeah, yeah, get, yeah. get into that mindset. Let, yeah. Let's figure this out. So he's definitely doing that. And you can just see the like wheels turning a lot when he's like, okay, now he's sort of um, in that killer's mindset. And uh, there's not really too many, if any, moments uh, where Ed Norton's really doing that. No, I, I think Ed Norton, like, even though in some cases, even the lines are the same. It's like, oh, how'd you do it? You know, you, you cut, mm-hmm. like Ed Norton's felt like a revelation. It was like, okay, I took the clues and this is the conclusion I came to Peterson feels like he he's he's living it you know he's mm-hmm. like all right what what did you do what were you thinking when he's in the tree you know yeah and he, he realizes that like that's where the guy staked him out his like he said he he talks to the camera he'll, he'll look right at the camera and it's like how'd you do it <laughs> you, you, you enjoyed it didn't you <laughs> like, like you said, took it, your gloves off you son of a bitch I had to touch her <laughs> We could probably do this for another twenty minutes, but like yeah, I, yeah. it's 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 it is a little campy because we're having fun with it, but it is it's a really interesting character portrayal, and I think it ultimately um, is good and just serves his character yeah. more. I, I never, away I never felt like it got into that category of complete camp where I was like, well, this is ridiculous. I would say, and not to jump too far, and towards the end, it does get a little more intense in a way that's like, all right, guys, you're, you're starting <laughs> to get in. Uh, some wild area here but like overall like i like it because like it's not just him either it's the other characters in the room the people that know his history and like they're feeding off of his energy and i think that that's the big difference between the two that the graham energy in in that original film just feels dangerous you know it feels like uh, is this guy going to be able to see this mission through i never really had that question for ed norton i knew that he'd be able to stay the course and honestly i'll say the one thing I actually kind of want to stay away from it because it's getting towards the ending, but I think Norton is able to play off the killer better. Let's put it that way. He knows the killer's weaknesses and is playing to them. Unfortunately, a lot of the killer's weaknesses are Peterson's weaknesses, the way he portrays them. Like, all the times that, um, which we'll get into, where Lecter's saying, you're just like me. It's like, uh, it is that, as you mentioned, that double-edged sword of the more he's like them, the worse it is, you know, right. like, because what's stopping him from being that killer? You know, it, it actually mm-hmm. reminds me of another film that we did recently, which was the Insomnia movies. Yeah. Um, that duality comes into play here. And 
yeah, like you mentioned, there's camp, there's cheese, mm-hmm. but uh, it it stays grounded just enough that um, I think it's a very interesting portrayal. Yeah, I think you nailed it by saying it's just a more dangerous portrayal in Manhunter. Like, you kind of have a feeling like, oh, they're both going to be able to do it. But like, when you're watching Manhunter, you're like, at what cost? Because Williams already talked about it, like he had to go into a psych ward just because uh, the way he captured Lecter. We just know what he's dealing with. So even though he might have like that one victory, he might lose like ultimately in the end. Um, and there's never that uh, amount of danger for Ed Norton. You just feel like there's that only the really sense of physical danger, yeah. not like any mental battle that he might lose. Yeah. I'll also say this, uh, full disclosure, that um, I happened to watch the director's cut um, of the oh. original. I, oh, cool. Again, not to detract this too much, but uh, I think that some of that gets explored a little bit more in the director's cut, and we'll get to that as mm. we go through the uh, the film. But um, Interesting. I, I'm glad you brought up the sort of mental health aspect in the psych ward, because I think that that's another distinguishing scene in the original film when uh, when Graham is talking to his son about his experience mm-hmm. going to the uh, mental health ward, and his son is afraid of him. And like I, I took a lot of cues from that scene for this character, which was his own kid is nervous about, you know, what he's capable of. So like now I'm definitely nervous <laughs> <laughs> about it. And um, I, I, I love the kind of the rawness of that scene. Like yeah. a lot of times in like an 80s film, I don't know if they'd be able to pull that off the way they did in this movie, which was, yeah, you know, son, like this is what happened and mm-hmm. uh, a bad thing happened. And he, he did a bad thing and it made me think of bad thoughts. And it just plays back into that, like, what are these bad thoughts Graham is having? And right. his aversion to getting back into this is probably because he knows deep down inside him there is something bad there, and he's mm-hmm. not really trying to turn over that stone. Yeah, I like that scene a lot too because it's he's you know he's talking to his kids, so he's trying to be as vague as mm-hmm. possible while not going into the you know those dark details. So like it's sort of you're able to kind of paint this picture yourself, like just how bad it really gets. So I like that. They do that a lot, I feel like, in Manhunter. They just give you enough, and then you kind of have to fill in the rest, and it's much worse in your own head than being shown it. I think you're right. Actually, one of, uh, and we'll, we'll get to it when we talk about Lecter, one of the yeah. key differences is, like, what they show in the remake versus mm-hmm. what they show in the original. And yeah. I, think, I think you're right. By keeping it vague, my imagination was, was probably worse than the, the truth. At one point, one of the other cops is like, hey, Will, we don't want you to relapse. You know, what does that mean? Like, I don't know mm-hmm. what relapse means in this. Is it just, we don't want you back in the psych ward? Or is it, hey, we know what you were talking about back then or how you were behaving. And, again, extrapolate. What, is, what does that mean? Right. Are they going to have to handle him? Like, what, mm-hmm. you know, it's masterfully done, really. I think you nailed it when you said that uh, when it's vague, you start to fill in the blanks. And I, I filled in the blanks with some pretty dark stuff myself. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, what what is... Who is Graham? You know, that question right. was a real question in the original, whereas in the remake, eh, it, didn't, it didn't really matter who Graham was. What Ed Norton pulled off very well was that it was obvious that he was capable mm-hmm. and um, he had a skill set that everyone else didn't have. I guess Lecter called it imagination. And in the remake, it's his imagination. In the original, it's, yes, his imagination, but what would he do with his imagination? That was a mm-hmm. question mark. I mean, that's pretty much all I have to say about Will. We could talk about the other character. But I do want to just say one more thing. Just his after his interactions with Lecter in the original, he kind of, like, freaks the fuck out. He's running out of that prison, just, like, trying to get some air. Like, 
he's clearly not over what happened between him and Lecter. And then in the remake, you don't get a scene like that at all. There's no panic. I think uh, I read somewhere that the only thing you could see that he was even nervous was that like he comes out and he's got some pit stains. So yeah, okay. it's just you know it's just a small little difference that I, I appreciated a little bit more in the original. Mm-hmm. That um like this guy he played it cool in front of Lecter as long as he could, but as soon as he was out there, he just kind of broke down and just everything just kind of he let everything kind of happen or take over. So just yeah. and again small differences you could see that in the original he's a little more you know damaged mentally than Ed Norton's character. Yeah. I'll say this, that uh, to your point, when he freaks out after the meeting, like when Lords, the journalist, takes a photo of him, he's, you know, he's hunched over, he's like having trouble breathing, like that's on full display. And that's, as we learned in the movie, that's now that's available to both Lecter and um, the killer. So he's he's much more vulnerable to that, to your point. Yeah. And then with like Norton, like you mentioned, the pit stains, I missed that. You know, I didn't really see that. Yeah. I didn't see it either. I just, I read it on IMDb. That's the only way I got yeah. that. I mean, the only time that when I really noticed that his nervousness betrayed him was when they had Lecter on that weird, like, track. He was, like, yeah. tied to the ceiling so he couldn't do stuff, which I thought was weird. Lecter kind of jumps at him and, like, you know, he, he flinches in that moment. But other than that, like, Norton is just right mm-hmm. here, the whole film, yeah. steady. And, uh, and Peterson, is, he's all over the place. And I, I, think it's a, I think it's a great asset to that original film. Not to say that the Norton portrayals that it's it's a very good portrayal but mm-hmm. there's just more to Graham in the original film well said i really don't have anything to add so if you're good i think we can go on to uh our second lead yeah. i guess so to speak all right so let's go on to the next character i mean you can't talk about any of these movies without talking about him right so our hannibal lectors in manhunter he's portrayed by brian cox and in red dragon he's of course portrayed by anthony hopkins where'd you want to start with this because we talked about Graham's sort of uh, mental state, mm-hmm. I think that the best place to start is actually, funny enough, at the beginning. In the beginning of Red Dragon, we see the Hannibal Lecter takedown. We see how Graham stopped Lecter. Um, we hear about it in the original film, and again, that, that vagueness led us to our own sort of conclusions about how that went. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the remake, I understand why they do it because you get to see pretty much a lot of backdrop in that opening scene. I'll say this. I was very impressed. I tend to not like hand-holding in movies. You know that about me. But, like, mm-hmm. I was very impressed by how much information they were able to get across in the opening sequence of the Red Dragon movie, whether it was the newspaper clippings about Hannibal Lecter and, like, talking about his crimes and, like, his mindset. The fact that we get that early conflict between Ed Norton and uh, Anthony Hopkins in an actual battle, like, Mm-hmm. They fight it out. I was very happy to see what was described in the original film sort of played out. But again, like everything, that is a double-edged sword as well because we know what Hannibal's capable of and we know what Ed Norton's capable of. And for all the talk of how much it affected him, it, you would think that it would have affected him <laughs> more. Uh, you thought it would have been a little bit more than just getting stabbed. Mm-hmm. Like maybe Hannibal played with him a little bit as, as we know Hannibal to do. Uh, yeah. So I'll just set up the scene. First, we it starts off uh, uh, at like an orchestra with Hannibal just like listening to some music and he's focusing on this one guy playing the flute. And he's just he's not quite hitting those notes right, Reggie. <laughs> and then we go to this dinner party afterwards um, with, I guess, an organization who puts this orchestra together. And then he's, you know, serving them 
this mystery meat, <laughs> and we're talking. We're talking about uh, the the flute guy going missing. So, you know, you know who Hannibal is. <laughs> you know what they're eating. It's, uh, you know, they're playing to the strengths of the character. This is how you, you want Hannibal. Here he is, right in the opening. He's doing his thing, feeding people people. Um, it's what you know. It's what you love. And then you do get to see him get, like, kind of gruesome. Uh, not as gruesome, though, I guess, as you want, though. Because, like you said, we know what he's capable of. If you've seen Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal before, you know he's, like really vicious and it's kind of a letdown that he only really just stabs will that's supposed to like have mentally scarred him i mean it's traumatic for sure but i you know what hannibal's capable of i think you could have maybe just a little taste a little little nip nip there Hannibal. yeah i think ed norton is a little too easily able to uh kind of overcome the situation Mm -hmm. i think that uh and I understand why it's not there, and you probably would be wasting a little bit too much time with it, but, like, mm-hmm. there should have been more to that scene, to your point, like, whether it was, like, some sort of torture, whether it was some sort of collateral damage, like, if uh, Norton had to make a choice about someone's well-being or his own, you know, something that would really make that scar, but, like, coming to the conclusion that the psychiatrist you've been working with to try to, like, solve this is actually, like, the murderer, and, you know, he opens up the book, just like what's described in the original film, weird World War battle wounds and stuff like that in the book, and he's got a shortbread recipe in there, so it's, huh? <laughs> he eats people. <laughs> I would have liked that scene, I mean, it sounds kind of dark, but like I would have liked that scene to be a little bit more sort of torturous than what we got, which was just like, all right, sure, he stabbed Ed Norton, but then Ed Norton immediately stabbed him, and then he shot him. Yeah. And it's, how is that the big scarring moment? We probably need to know more about their relationship or we would have had to see that scene play out a little bit more dangerously and a little bit longer for for me to believe that it had this like super lasting effect and i think that's why in the movie it doesn't come across as it did yeah and that's probably why we don't see ed norton as scarred as Mm -hmm. uh will and the manhunter because it just it seems you know bad but not something necessarily that would make you mentally damaged right and uh i don't correct me if i'm wrong though i think in the original he might have had a partner because when he visits Hannibal in the Manhunter, he asks about another detective and mm-hmm. he says, you know, he's, he's fine. He's a little mentally not there or something, but overall he was okay. So I think Will might have had a partner when he got Hannibal. So, something like that because uh, I actually, weirdly enough, rewatched that scene today. Like I was mm-hmm. kind of going through some um, interviews and stuff like that and they played that clip of when they first meet in the prison. And you're right, he asked about sergeant or detective whatever his name was and uh like you mentioned peterson's like oh no he's he's okay and, he's, and hannibal actually makes a note about like that person's mental health like that person had sort of a mental breakdown as well so yeah. this hannibal is i mean both hannibals are dangerous we know that anthony hopkins uh portrayal and just how deep into your psyche he can get but like brian cox like really really does a number on people and they're two different portrayals, but like I, I find them both to hold weight on their own on their own merit. Yeah, they definitely do. Obviously, Anthony Hopkins gets a lot more to do. This is his third time, and I think it was his final time portraying the character. And he's like, if you've seen the movie poster, he's right there. It's like his head over like a tiny Ed Norton. So they want him front and center in this movie. They know people love Hannibal, so they're gonna give you as much Hannibal as they can. So you know. He's in the beginning of that movie. He's also in the end, you know, a little teaser for Silence of the Lambs. So they, they sprinkle Hannibal throughout because they know that's what the crowd wants. 
And, you know, Anthony Hopkins does what he does, but he doesn't really get to be, I guess, so threatening in this one, because Hannibal is more of just like a background character. Yeah. He doesn't really have like an arc, or doesn't get to escape, or really hurt anybody so much as other than the, the beginning of the movie where he's serving up the guy who plays the flute. Um, and Brian Cox, you know, it's, it's an interesting portrayal. He does get to uh, show um, just his intelligence and how he's able to get Will's uh, at home address. And he does get to do a cool little uh, phone hack with a gum wrapper. <laughs> I don't know how sound that science is, but sure, why not? He's kind of funny um, when he's on the phone. Because uh, he, he like talks to somebody at the university. He's like, oh, what was the name of that receptionist? Oh, her name's Martha. He's like, all right, great. So he, he thinks he's going to use that. He's like, hey, Martha. He's like, Martha's not here right now. He's like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to like, <laughs> improvise. And he's kind of a dick to the whoever's working at night instead of Martha. So um, it's a different portrayal of Hannibal. But it, it definitely, I could appreciate it in its own right. Yeah. I think what Anthony Hopkins, I mean, he... Is Hannibal, you know, like we, yeah. you know, Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal. Um, what probably like a great, great performance as usual, but a lot of the Hannibal mystery is kind of gone. So even though this is a prequel, like we know so much about Hannibal already, especially the way Anthony Hopkins has played it, that you know, he's playing Hannibal, you know, like as he's done in the past, and it, it works. And you know, he's mentally sparring with Ed Norton, and honestly, a lot of people in the film. He gets way more screen time than Brian Cox, you know, like you mentioned, even though he's not even, he's technically not the lead or the, the villain, <laughs> but like he's the poster of the film. So, you know, Anthony Hopkins, he, he, he does what he, what he does, but like, I appreciate that Brian Cox, one, I've never seen his portrayal and it is, it's different. You know, it was the first portrayal. He, I think he was very capable to your point. He didn't seem as dangerous physically as Anthony Hopkins does, which is weird given Anthony Hopkins age, but like the way they let Anthony Hopkins sort of act and like kind of use action, he seems to be more physically imposing where like this one just seems to be like, like you mentioned, he can be a dick and he can get under your skin. Like he just knows how to push your buttons. He knows how to manipulate people. And I, I felt that to me, when he got Will's address and like gave that to the killer, that had more of an impact on me in the original film than in, in the remake for whatever reason it's the same thing i guess but like mm -hmm. it just felt more treacherous for some reason in the original it's just like wow this guy is just he's yeah. he's a dirty fuck like he'll do anything it takes uh <laughs> to uh, get in your head and like anthony hopkins is more of a slow burn and i think part of that is because that's how he's played the character in the past and he has time to actually let things build and, and burn mm -hmm. yeah to your point i think um the Brian Cox, when he does that phone call, it just seems like more menacing because we hadn't seen him do anything. Yeah. And so we were just assuming that uh, Lecter's going to play along. And then when he does this, it, it almost kind of comes out of nowhere. So it, it does take you by surprise as opposed to the Hopkins portrayal. We already saw him try to kill Will. So it's not going to be a surprise that he's still, you know, trying to get back at him, right. trying to get even with him. And uh, to your other point, um, that the Anthony Hopkins seems more dangerous physically, I think it, a lot of that just um, has the way the guards kind of treat him like in the original to give brian cox the phone it's just like just turn around face the wall or i'll mace you one cop right to give hannibal lecter the phone you got like three armed guards with a shotgun you know just aiming it right at him you know the threat level um what the police are doing tells me that this guy is a little more threatening just 
the way they treat Hannibal overall in uh, Red Dragon just makes him seem like the bigger threat. But um, because we get less of him in uh, the in Manhunter, when he does something, it just it's, it just seems like it's it has more of an, an effect because we don't we're getting so little Hannibal yeah. in the uh, Manhunter. Yeah, and and I think uh, as we were kind of talking about, it, I was thinking about it a little bit more too. I think it's also because I care about Graham's family more in the original. Mm. Because yeah. we spent we just spend more time with him. The wife is a little bit more fleshed out, which we'll get into in the original. So just like, oh geez, he's gonna go after this guy's family, <laughs> you know? Like, uh, like you mentioned, like you mentioned, like uh, Anthony Hopkins' greatest strength is I know how well he plays his character. What Brian Cox's greatest strength for me was I've never seen this portrayal, and like mm-hmm. I was very surprised at just the lengths that he would go to to try to like cause damage whereas like i expect that from anthony hopkins as you mentioned yeah. so i think those are kind of the key differences uh when it comes to like the threat level in the film i think brian cox only has like three scenes in uh manhunter and anthony hopkins definitely has a lot more so he gets a little more to play with so he we do get a lot you know obviously we get more hannibal and it's anthony hopkins i mean <laughs> i'm not gonna complain <laughs> that i'm seeing anthony hopkins do hannibal so uh if i had to like you know, compare them. It's obviously Anthony Hopkins <laughs> because he is Hannibal. And then what are you, you going to do? But still, a very good portrayal by Brian Cox. Yeah. And I was a little worried because it's like, how do you, how does anybody, I mean, now we have the Hannibal show, but like, you know, how back then, like, when he did before Anthony Hopkins, you didn't even know how to work this character. And I thought he did pretty good. Yeah, I, I would say that, um, I mean, look, Hopkins played the character to an Oscar turn. So I, you can't really debate who's, who is Hannibal Lecter. I mean, like, he is Hannibal Lecter in people's mm-hmm. minds. Brian Cox holds his own, you know, even with the limited screen time, even with the 80s sort of a sheen on the film. I think that, like, it's a compelling Lecter, and it would actually be interesting to see him get to do as much with that character as Anthony Hopkins got to over the years, because I think you could make an argument that, uh, although it's not equal, like, obviously, like, I'm... I'm uh, Putting the edge of Anthony Hopkins, I mean, they're toe to toe. I think that they, they're both very strong portrayals. So I want to give Brian Cox his due because he was first and he did it very well. Yeah, that's true. Should we go on to our actual villain in the movie? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we have Francis Dollarhide, portrayed by Tom Noonan in Manhunter, Rafe Fiennes in Red Dragon. Dollarhide. What can I say about this? I, they are very different portrayals. <laughs> I'll start off with this. In the in the remake in Red Dragon, we see Dollarhide at the 43 minute mark, I think. We don't see Dollarhide in the original until about the hour mark. I like that more that they did that in Manhunter because, you know, we're we're just investigating him the whole time. We're learning about his crimes, what he did, and it's just building up, building up, building up, building up until we finally see him. And then when we do see each character for the first time it's in different circumstances yeah uh, i'll start with red dragon again we see francis in his attic he's wearing i guess they don't look quite like pantyhose but there's something like pantyhose or like a burlap sack something over his face so you can't quite see his face you just kind of see the crazy place he lives in with like weird paintings and then he's it was his scrapbook that we were seeing in the opening credits mm-hmm. and we get to see a serial killer use a glue stick that you can't really say that too often <laughs> that was great when he's putting together his little scrapbook so it's not obviously not normal behavior sure. but not necessarily terrifying at the same time as opposed to um dollar hide in the original and manhunter the first time we see him 
He's got Lowndes. <laughs> he's got him taken prisoner. Lowndes is freaking out. The first time we see him, the serial killer, he's going to do what serial killers do. Yes. So right off the bat, he's just a more terrifying portrayal. I mean, I don't know how you no, think I, about that. I'm, I'm right there with you. It, uh, it actually reminds me a little bit of like, of like when you see Buffalo Bill in the silence of the lambs, like the scene where he's in front of the mirror and he's playing goodbye horses. Like I got that vibe. Like when, when he had the stocking, whatever, half his face. And he's just like, so menacing. Tom Noonan looked scary as shit. Like I was like, I am very uncomfortable with what I'm seeing right now. <laughs> it's like, you know, Lowndes is in trouble because this guy, <laughs> this guy is a serial killer. It's like, well, of course he is because look at him. Whereas, like, Ralph Fiennes, I think you're right. It's sort of, it blunts the terror when you get to kind of know him a little bit. Um, and I think that's sort of the point of Red Dragon, that you get more than an idea of who Dollarhide is. And, like, that scene plays back into some different things we know about him. Like, he's strong. They keep bringing that up. Like, Scott's really strong. So he's, like, lifting, <laughs> he's lifting weights. And you can kind of hear, like, this internal dialogue of his past and the grandma or something like that. Like, he's got a lot of problems. Yeah. I think, you, I think we do see the uh, tattoo in that first sequence, right? Or is that... Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. So, you know, I mean, like, they play into the uh, the William Blake painting more. Like, there's a mm-hmm. huge painting. The house is all dilapidated. So you get an idea of, like, kind of how he's living a little bit more in the remake. But, like, just, it's irrelevant in the original. When you see this guy, it's just like, that dude's creepy. I don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> and, like you said, he does serial killer stuff from the beginning. And uh, very early on in the movie... Yeah, I would say the Manhunter portrayal definitely freaked me out a lot more upon first seeing the villain. Yeah, and also, because we're seeing Tom Noonan, he get, he interacts with Lowndes, right? Like, uh, Ray Fiennes isn't really talking to, like, other people, so to speak. So, um, his manner, the way he's talking, well, he has a man, like, tied up that he knows he's going to kill. It's just, like, it's so eerily calm he's like do you see he's just like he's just talking he's not yelling at him it doesn't sound like he's got any like anger or anything in his yeah. voice he's just kind of talking normal so it's just like this guy really is fucking crazy if he thinks he can just like talk, act like this is all kind of normal going on so um yeah it's just a very creepy portrayal it is in like like you said with the normalcy i just felt more like when Lowndes is like when Lowndes really does think that he might let him go you know mm-hmm. Because he comes out, it's like, oh, what do you think? So you think I'm uh, a homosexual? You think I'm out here? He's like, no, 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 I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> like, I didn't mean it. Like you mentioned, he's very calm in this, like, eerie way. You were witnessing the, the great change, your, your uh, afterbirth of an ant and stuff like that. Like, all these, like, wild lines, just the way he delivers them, it really comes across as, like, believable to me that this guy has been, like, hacking people up. And, <laughs> and uh, like you mentioned, just... That sequence, do you see? see, Like, like he's gonna make you see, and like it it is, it is so so creepy, man. Like I I knocked it out of the park right there from the opening scene. Ralph finds like when we finally do get to that point, it you know it's the same thing, but it's sort of like we were saying with Hannibal. You showed me something before, so now some of that mystery is gone, and like you know I, I also say that you know because I watched them kind of in order the movies came out like you kind of know what's going to happen to Lowndes there so you know I, I'll give credit back to Red Dragon that I kind of knew what was going to happen there I think even without knowing it I, I don't think it would have had as much of an impact as that original is because just 
the first thing you see is a guy with a stocking on his head. Yeah. He's got a guy tied up, and he is talking all kinds of crazy. It, it's it's nuts. I don't know if I'm getting ahead here, or I'm just if there's anything else you want to talk about that. But like, there's two different things going on too with the serial killers. I'm gonna start with Red Dragon again. Ray mm-hmm. finds this character. He's like hearing these voices, right? He's like, no, I don't want to do that, or yes, I will do that, or sure, Red Dragon, I will follow you, or whatever. He's not quite in control, right? He's he's clearly insane, you know, makes sense. He's a serial killer. So, but he's kind of at the mercy of this Red Dragon thing, or his mother sometimes. It's not quite clear. It doesn't need to be clear. You don't really get that uh, in Manhunter. This guy knows exactly what he's doing. He's in complete control. Um, he does get a little bit jealous later, but I still feel like he was, he's not really like fighting anything. He's, there's not like this weird conflict, like I need to be good or I don't need to do this. Like this guy's pretty much just wants to be a killer. And I like that. <laughs> yeah. There's a few humanizing moments in Red Dragon. Like there's moments where like they try to show us as an audience as to how, someone like this could exist, you know, whether it was he's abused as a child, you know, which he's keeping a literal scrapbook with all of his experiences. And it's like, all right, like, uh, okay, I get it. And like, you know, the cleft palate, they really played into like his concerns about his appearance and stuff like that. You know, there's just so much more time with him and the way his mind works that you're right. Like he's, I don't know, maybe you can call it schizophrenic or whatever you want to call it, but like he's got voices in his head. And he, like you mentioned, he's fighting the voices. So it's almost like there's the good guy version of him somewhere deep down there. And uh, unfortunately, the Red Dragon's taking hold because uh, we'll get into it when we talk about the love interest in the films. There's this humanity that he's fighting to kind of get get back a little bit. But he, he's just, he, he can't, you know, it's just not going to happen. And to your point, it blunts some of the action because, you know, he's not fully culpable for it. Like, I mean, he is obviously, but like, we now have kind of like an excuse for why he's doing this. So it makes it, well, you know, if only he didn't have this problem or mm-hmm. if only he was treated better as a child. Tom Noonan, I don't know why the hell he's doing it. I mean, <laughs> this stuff's there. It's also there in the, the dialogue. But like the reality is like, I don't care what happened to you. That guy is acting very, very strange. And uh, there's not enough time with him in a humanizing element for me to be like, to want anything to happen other than for the, him to be stopped. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to like dive too much into it. Just I want to put a pin when we talk about the love interest. I think that the reaction to the love interest, I definitely want to talk about between the two characters. But uh, mm-hmm. I think we can kind of flesh a little bit more out before we get there. Uh, Unless you want to do, just do it now. Let's get into the love interest. Yeah. Is there anything else? Really, really, the only thing that I can think of is just how much more they flesh out. Uh, the Red Dragon in the remake, you know, like mm-hmm. he's got some sort of background apparently with like potentially like military stuff because they they bring that up. He's he's a big guy, he's an imposing figure. Um, he's also really vulnerable. So like we get we get a little bit more of just like his day to day. It's like when when we do get to the love interest, we learn more about his day to day at work. You know, like we don't get that <laughs> in the original. Like uh, she people in the office, you know, know that he's a bit off, but like they there's enough normal about him that he functions in society and we understand how he could function in society. I don't really understand how Tom Noonan is getting away with being <laughs> who he is, you know? 
Yeah, he just not only like acts bizarre, he like dresses bizarre too. It's just like, oh man, you're just not even trying to fit in, are you, dude? So I think we should just go into the love interest because that'll help flesh out our dollar hard characters. So our love interest, Reba McLean, I think, <laughs> not related to John McLean, uh, portrayed by Joan Allen in Manhunter and Emily Watson in uh, Red Dragon, our blind love interest. Where should we start here? Maybe, I guess, maybe with how they first meet? That's yeah. sort of different. I'll start again with Red Dragon. His co-workers meet her at work. And uh, the first interaction is kind of short. Just kind of introduces her. Um, or gets introduced to her. And then um, he just sees a co-worker like, hitting on her. And she says, no, I'll just take a bus home. But ultimately, he just gives her a ride home anyway. And uh, that's kind of it. There's nothing really there. It's just kind of just the introduction of those two characters. The original Manhunter, they don't waste any time with Like, they meet for the first time. Um, we do know that there's another guy who takes her home, but not necessarily a love interest. And then he kind of takes her to the vet where she gets to see this tiger that's passed out. And she gets to like feel it and hear its heartbeat. And then um, he takes her back to his place. And he's watching a movie of the next victims because yeah. she's blind, so it's okay. And then they bang. I mean, a lot of things happen yeah. <laughs> on their first meeting. It moves pretty fast in the original. Yeah, it gets really fast-tracked, which honestly, in a way, I kind of appreciate, to be honest. Like, there's not really a lot of reason. Again, in the original, they don't spend a lot of time fleshing out this guy. Like, he's, mm. he's a serial killer. And go. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> Like, uh, I, I did appreciate sort of the speed. It was, it was kind of unusual how quickly things advanced. Like, like you said, they met, Hey, get a ride with me. And she was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <We're> gonna, <laughs> I want to show you something. So we get the tiger scene much earlier in the original film in terms of their interaction. Um, and I think like, I kind of, I kind of get that. Like she mentioned, Reba mentions in the first film that she's sort of kind of hired to kind of fill out like almost like a diversity hire. It's like, oh, they needed like mm -hmm. a handicapped person for a government grant. So I also think that the mirrors in the original film get a lot more play and explanation, in my opinion, than in the remake. And like, there's something about like her being blind and him with the, the mirrors and the eyelids thing that I thought was an interesting kind of cross play throughout the film. And it was just interesting that like, all right, she got the tiger. I guess they got her all jazzed up. So when they got back to the house, uh, it, it was on, buddy. <laughs> and she was ready to go. She's the one that made all the moves, too. That <laughs> is, that was the weirdest sex scene that I've seen in a movie <laughs> in, in a long time. And I watched the other two sex scenes in this movie, <laughs> 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 which were not great. <laughs> but, like, I don't know. Like, he just, again, the normalcy wasn't there. Like, like he's hooking up with this chicken. It's just so strange. His arms aren't where they should be. You know, <laughs> he's just like I don't know. Like you mentioned, she's she's putting on all the moves, and he's really awkward. And what I liked about that difference in the films is that her coming into his life was the sort of normalizing, humanizing element, which is like, okay, maybe there's a chance for this guy to turn around. And it gets dashed when he thinks that, like, she has another love interest herself. Mm -hmm. But, like, for a brief moment here, even this guy was starting to kind of, like, turn the corner. Which, like, we didn't really need that with Ralph Fiennes. Like, he, 
you know, he was doing enough kind of socially, uh, which we see from the love interest in the remake where she's saying, you know, all the girls describe your work because you can't see. She's like, they say, you know, you're, you're tall, you got a good body and stuff like that. So like, if he wasn't so weird, he actually could have been like, okay in society. He actually has a, he has a more negative version of himself than what he's actually coming across as, where in the original to me, whatever you think about this guy, believe it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in the remake, it's like, he's putting on a lot of his own projections on the world. And, you know, it's a nice subtle difference, but I think that, um, I don't know, like you said, because he has the, the red dragon sort of telling him what to do, it, it, I don't know, the sequence feels a lot different to me. I don't know about you. Okay, the love story <laughs> in both yeah. of these movies. <laughs> definitely not my favorite part. <laughs> it definitely slows down. Especially noticed it more in the original because we do spend like a lot of time with those two characters just like for a bit, and it's like the investigation of the crime just like comes to a complete halt. Um, it's yeah, like I said, it's not my favorite part. I think I like parts of it and i don't like parts of it in the remake um i do like how it's spaced out more in the remake how they don't just like go through like all the phases of a relationship in one night and I, th I think uh reba or emily watson in the original has a little more to play with we do hear about her backstory more how she wasn't always blind last thing she saw was a cougar so when he takes her to see the tiger it like has it more has more meaning for her so i thought it was like a sweeter moment and like you said it really humanizes him it's like supposed to make us think like maybe he can come back from that but like i didn't really think that at all like <laughs> i know what this guy did <laughs> and uh to two families i didn't think there's any chance that somebody like that could come back so while it was sweeter and more humanizing i guess in the remake i just for me i didn't really believe for a second that it was possible for this guy to really come back um so while it's nice in nicer i think uh in the remake it's just like ultimately kind of pointless because this guy's a killer he's clearly a killer so i guess i do like in the original manhunter how just how quickly it moves because like <laughs> we don't have to spend time like developing this relationship and then maybe he was gonna come back because i knew there's no fucking way that guy with a fucking pantyhose on his face is gonna fucking come right. back uh so uh, I like, I think I like Emily Watson's portrayal a little bit more than Joan Allen's just because she has more of a backstory. Mm. Um, but ultimately, it's a, for me, it is like the weakest part of the movie because I just didn't believe that Dollar Hyde was redeemable. Yeah, it's it's almost like a means to an end. Like in the, in the original film, like you mentioned, it, <clears throat> everything happened so quickly. Like even as you were talking, I'm thinking of the word like, humanizing and it really is just because he is inhuman <laughs> like his entire being is just wrong so like i guess anything resembling a human interaction and like something resembling tenderness was like okay maybe this guy maybe like i said big time maybe he could be like mm -hmm. somewhat normal but then he immediately comes crashing down because of course he did like he his he sees, basically, she's like, oh, you got something in your eye. And he sees, oh, these two are, like, fucking making out. I'm, I got I to gotta step in here and, and do something. So, like, again, his perception of reality, which is true about both of them, but his perception of reality is so off base that there was never a chance, to your point, that he was going to be anything other than 
a serial killer. Uh, the remake plays with this idea that perhaps he could be, and they really want you to kind of care about his relationship with, uh, with Emily Watson, but I think to your point, ultimately, really the only purpose it serves is to flesh out the, the villain a little bit more. I mean, it's important that she's there, but she really is kind of filler until we get back to the main plot line. I think you, I think you kind of nail it, that in both films, it just kind of stops what the point is. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's okay to flesh out your villain a little bit more, but these aren't even movies where you, I think you even need to continue to do so. You know? Yeah. Like, just, they're bad guys, and he's trying to catch them. Like, uh, since nothing ultimately comes from the love interest... I think you're right that it, it, it sort of just puts the brakes in a weird place. And um, the one upside to your point as well in the original is that at least we get over it really quickly. It's like, yeah. boom, 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 boom. All right, we bang. I'm going to kill you. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's kind of weird in the remake too. Uh, maybe you can help me out with the scene because mm-hmm. um, he does freak out after they bang in the remake. And he's like, you got to go. I got to go. I got to work trip. And then he goes to, I guess, get the original painting of the red dragon thing yeah and he proceeds to eat it in a bizarre scene and he doesn't kill the two women who witnessed him sort of doing that and he says that was to save reba but then at the same time he wants to burn down his house and do like a murder suicide with her right so i mean i was was just confused by that no it's confusing i mean mentally sorry i'm trying to get my height right here (laughs) mentally it's all Messed up. So, obviously, like, he's got this obsession with a lot of things. He's got an obsession with Hannibal Lecter, for instance. He's kind of like his hero. You know, he's writing him, you know, it's like uh, Eminem Stan. He's writing him. <laughs> <laughs> the original Stan. I guess. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Dear Hannibal, you're a really cool guy. <laughs> but, like, I, I felt it, unfortunately, like, from there, I kind of started to not like the portrayal in Red Dragon from basically that point that you're talking about, because it's so, it's so sloppy, you know? Like, everything else was so, you know, at least more so, was more calculated and careful, and I, don't, I didn't feel like I lost that in the original. I think that, yes, he was sort of emotional and stuff like that, but it wasn't like he got caught because he was sloppy in the relationship. He just got caught because, over time, they figured it out. Whereas, like, in this remake... Okay, you're obsessed with William Blake's painting, and you're gonna go to the Brooklyn Museum to like get the original painting. Doesn't really make sense, you know? Like, oh, if I destroy this cool old painting, then like I'll be free. And I, I just thought the idea that he could go into the Brooklyn Museum, and the only thing stopping him from being able to destroy a priceless painting is one older woman that invited him in, like. I, no, and like it felt like right there he should have been caught because how the hell were you gonna get out of there? The fact that they're even still trying to figure out who he was is it's the Brooklyn Museum. Like I know it's yeah. the '80s, but like there's a camera, there were guards, there's all kinds of other things that would have stopped him from escaping. So like it just felt like the movie just started to kind of like move along through these paces because now we're at the end game because we chose to do this weird painting eating scene. And to your point, it is confusing. Like, what was his purpose? Like, to save her? But clearly it wasn't working because he thought that he had to kill her to save her. So it just feels like a very weird side quest, you know? Like, mm-hmm. And honestly, the thing that pissed me off the most, which really shouldn't have been a takeaway, 
is that he could destroy like an old painting like that. I'm I'm a fan of the arts, Dan. <laughs> and like, no no bullshit. I was really sitting there like, oh, I can't believe they're gonna let him. Again, I know it's a movie. I know it's it's fiction and fantasy and stuff like that. But I'm just sitting there like, well, just why aren't we taking better care of our culture? <laughs> <laughs> and it just it feels it feels like it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Yeah, it could easily been cut that scene and it still would have functioned as well as it did without it because i really don't know the impact of him going all the way to brooklyn eating this painting because we still end up where he's pretty much the red dragon he could have done the same thing with the painting that was in his house and that's why he wanted to burn the house down yeah yeah easily could have done that or just yeah just make sure that painting had a lot of lighter fluid on it before you lit that match you know uh you didn't need this like detour so yeah it was just a weird questionable scene and like you said like he just kind of knocks them out he doesn't hurt them any further mm-hmm. like i think even like as dark as that is like i think if he had done something to them it would have at least been in line with the character uh you know yeah. but he just kind of escapes and it's it just it felt flimsy and i didn't really understand why it was there is there anything else about reba we want to talk about or should we get onto some other side characters no i mean the only uh no, I mean, really, the only thing is that it's, I think that there's probably some bigger meaning there with her being blind and, you know, his obsession with sight and stuff like that. I think that, you know, from a, sort of like a novelization standpoint, I'm sure that was kind of fleshed out in a way that made you think that maybe there was something redeemable there. But on film, I don't think in either scenario really translates to that. Uh, Dollar Hyde is out of his mind, and there wasn't really a good reason to spend a lot of time with either of those characters so to my only point about all of this is i like that they did it really quickly in the original because <laughs> we mm-hmm. got past it and got back to the action what do you think about oh actually maybe i want to talk about this a little bit his turn when he sees her sort of i guess what he thinks in his mind is cheating it was portrayed pretty interestingly in um manhunter i thought um we had that song playing we have uh, a <laughs> Pretty decent soundtrack in that original Manhunter. Yeah. Throwing some pop songs. Um, yeah, he's just kind of in his van, and uh, he's watching Reba get dropped off by that, her co-worker, and he's mm-hmm. kind of just reaching for her cheek. You don't really see a kiss or anything, but like it's all like playing out in his mind. Like This true love is like blossoming like between these two people, and then like that white glow... Yeah, that he would see sometimes is, is occurring there too. And then he just like rips the leather off of his uh, the interior of his car, and then uh, just kills that dude <laughs> right yeah. there and kidnaps Reba. He's really strong in the original too. They don't yeah. talk about that. Yeah, enough. really strong. I think they, <laughs> I think they did a maybe like if you want to talk about humanizing, I think they did a better portrayal of him kind of dealing with the fact that like maybe she doesn't love me. Like I think like he was in a lot of anguish there. In, in Manhunter, like just sitting in the car, just watching the two of them. It's like the scene plays out a, l- a longer, definitely, than it did in Red Dragon. And that was like the only time <laughs> I felt like maybe any sympathy <laughs> for this guy, just because like he was really hurt in there. And I didn't get that um, in Red Dragon. It was a lot quicker. We don't get this a cool song to play over. Uh, while uh, the guy is with her. And this guy in the remake was actively pursuing her. Yeah. So uh, it would make sense for him <laughs> to be more jealous. But um, we don't really stay with uh, Ray Fiennes while the two of them are uh, 
doing their thing. We, we stay more with Reba for some reason yeah. instead of um, dealing with uh, Dollar Hyde's anguish. So uh, I don't know. If, I know we're supposed to sympathize with uh, Dollar Hyde more in the remake because, like, you know, of his upbringing and maybe if things were done differently. But at that scene, I definitely felt more for Dollar Hyde in yeah. Manhunter. Well, I'm glad you came back around because I, I, I actually agree. Like, uh, in Red Dragon, after they interact, like, he, you know, he doesn't handle it well, obviously. He's like, get out, get out, gotta get out, like, get out of my van. Mm-hmm. And, like, it was just, uh, it was kind of disappointing for me because in the original, like I said, yes, is it ham-fisted? Is it quick? Does it make a lot of sense? No. But at least, like, after they interact, he's like, when can I see you again? Right, right. right? <laughs> and, like, he's built up this relationship in his mind so that when he sees what he thinks he's seeing, he has this adverse reaction because he, at this point, had basically claimed possession of her he thought that it was just another kind of thing for him to own in, in a sense and like you mentioned the glow that actually comes into play because you, again it builds out Graham again in a weird way because Graham is starting to see a glow and you know the 80s music really intensifies <laughs> with this glowing effect uh it actually for whatever reason in my head I had like the last dragon song in my head you ever see that movie Last Dragon. It's uh, Bruce Leroy. It's kind of like a black exploitation film, like Shona. Well, nah. that's fine. But like, there, there's a, an 80s song in that, and it's like, you are the last dragon. You've <laughs> got the glow. And like, I just <laughs> kept playing that through my head. But like, yeah, he has this intense light that he sees. He's seeing something that's not happening at all. The guy's like, mm-hmm. oh, you got a little smudge <laughs> on your face. <laughs> Pollen. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah. And like, it sets him off. And that, to me, makes more sense that he lost control mm-hmm. in a fit of rage versus I'm at the Brooklyn Museum and I'm going to, like, hit a guy, hit that lady <laughs> with the same, uh, I hope you notice, it's the same weapon from Death Wish. Uh, no, no, it wasn't, was it? Yeah, it wasn't quite. It, was, it wasn't rolled up pennies, but it was, okay. it was still a blackjack. He hit her with uh, some kind of... It was one of those things that uh, I see people <laughs> knock other people out in the back of the head with. Yeah, often in James Bond movies that Sean Connery's in. <laughs> But uh, I'm making too many references. But no, I, I think I think you're right. Like that felt more sort of sympathetic and humanizing, and that really doesn't make sense because the remake is the more sympathizing, humanizing moment. But like, I just think the raw kind of like emotion of it felt more real. Whereas, yeah. like you said in the remake, you were asking questions like, "What was the purpose?" And I can't really answer that myself like i don't know why he felt the need to burn down the house with her you know now should we maybe go on to some other side characters yeah yeah let's do it we had mentioned the family a little bit before they're not heavy in either film but they definitely help us flesh out the graham character so definitely important so i'll just go over their names really quickly the wife of william graham her name is molly portrayed by kim greased manhunter and mary louise parker in red dragon then we have the sons, the only name that is changed, even from the book. I forget what the name in the book was, but in Manhunter, it's Kevin, portrayed by David Seaman. And then in Red Dragons, Josh, portrayed by Tyler Patrick Jones. You had mentioned before uh, that we get a little bit more of the family in Manhunter. Maybe you want to elaborate on that now? Yeah, just because uh, I do want to spend more time with the wife and not that much time with the son because there's not mm-hmm. really a reason to. Sure. Um, I'll say this, that Kevin really kills it in that uh, grocery scene where they talk about, yeah. you know, his mental health. 
that's about the only reason you need Kevin or Josh to be a small, vulnerable child, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, you know, just kind of ups the ante of, like, the danger of, like, the, the serial killer coming after him. Because I think what I like about the original film is that there's more emphasis played on the family. So, like, I'm seeing the family. It's just, like, the leads or the other, I forget the name of the other family. So, like, I'm seeing the same kind of setup for what the killer's trying to kill. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, like, I'm, I'm more nervous for them. Uh, and especially Josh getting that time to, like, talk to his dad and really learn more about him. I mean, the closest equivalent in the remake comes towards the end uh, when Josh's life is threatened. But uh, other than that, there's nothing to him, you know, in that remake. I mean, Kevin even gets a little more time with the dad in the original because it begins pretty much with like him and his dad like doing building this uh fence around this like turtle's nest right because they want they live at the beach then the, the turtles are born they got to get to the sea if they don't have protection the crabs will eat them all so he's yeah. just having this like little conversation with his son you know it's small but you know it's father-son moment and it comes back in the ending too mm-hmm. so we just get to see graham just be a dad sometimes yeah. which is which is important and uh, like you said the grocery store scene that's like a very important scene really mm-hmm. gets us into graham's like just mind space just what happens to him when he goes after these serial killers we don't get an equivalent at all no. in the remake for I... the grocery store scene and there's no uh like threat of the dad like you mentioned before like the kevin in manhunter is just like I'm in the kitchen, Mom. He's like, why does he have to announce? Uh, he just wants me to know where he is at all times. He's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> My own son just doesn't think you're safe when it's just you and me. So, um, yeah, it, it really uh, just helps flesh out his character more. You just get to see him being father more. And then just the danger. <laughs> we know that he's a little more dangerous in uh, Manhunter. So right. definitely points to the son in the original. And I think we're going to probably agree with the wife <laughs> in the original too so if you want to pivot there sure i'll say before i do the full pivot um i'm glad you bring up the opening scene because like i said it's a small scene with the fence and stuff like that but like if you because it's cinema and you can think about this he might be saying something in that moment you know when you really break it down because like he's built this sort of gate to keep out coyotes dogs whatever it is but like he also mentions that you have to extend and put that wire that gating underground too so it reminds me again of this graham character which is you can't just build up the the fence on the outside where everyone can see there's something underneath that you got to protect from too and i think that perhaps that is intentional um i imagine it is because it's a movie and like you just again like you mentioned it fleshes things out and it's like you're sitting there like i'm learning more about graham in these small interactions with his his son and uh to your point on the pivot with his wife as well so i mean when you're looking at kim grice and the original film, it's not even like you're spending that much time for Like, they kind of, like, bang twice, <laughs> like, throughout <laughs> the film. But, like, she's much more concerned, at least when I watched it, that's how I felt. She's much more concerned about him getting back into it because the mental health mm-hmm. is a part of it. You know, in Mary Louise Parker's scenario, like, the only reason for her not to do it, and she kind of mentioned it, is for kind of, like, her own selfish desire to have her husband around. But, like, Kim Grice has to worry about her husband coming back, not just physically from right. this crime, but like mentally. And like, she, she does not want to go through the scenario of him, like being back in the psych ward. And it, it just comes into play 
more often. Like when Hannibal gives up his address, it matters more because mm-hmm. it's the kind of I told you so moment. It's like, I told you not to dive back into this life. And he's responsible, Graham is, for bringing this danger into his family's life, which is true in the other film. But it matters more because we know a little bit more about their relationship. We get to see it play out a little bit more. And uh, it's like you cast Mary Louise Parker, who's a very strong actress, and you didn't really use her. It's just it's mm-hmm. a weird, weird kind of a conundrum. It's like you spend so much more time with Lecter in the remake. You spend so much t- more time with the other love interest. And is it very important to spend time with the family? Not really, but it does help build out the character. And I'm glad they did it in the original. Yes, she just Molly, the character Molly, just has a lot more to do in the original. Whether if it's just like you know the occasional. Uh, you know, bang that they do, <laughs> or maybe just a phone call, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he really confides in his wife, and it's really just, I don't know, it just seems like a more equal partnership. Like, yeah. he really um, thought what she had to say was just, like, equally important. It's like, sometimes I just need my wife, you know, to, to get me through this. And you didn't see Ed Norton <laughs> need to go to his wife at all for anything. So when the ending comes, it's not as impactful right. as it would have been if that ending happened in Manhunter. And you get to see more of the tension, like when they fight about painting the kitchen, you know, like that matters because he's not handling a pretty mundane conversation very well because of the stress of his job. When he, he's basically lying to her about his involvement in the case. And he's saying, oh, no, 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 see, they just had me doing, you know, a couple things. I'm on the outside. I'm not really involved. He doesn't want to tell his wife that he talked to Hannibal Lecter. That is a secret that he's trying to keep from his wife. And when it causes the um, potential, like, serial killer finding out where they live and all that, there's a consequence to his actions. And, like, there are consequences to Graham's actions in the original film that Ed Norton just doesn't seem to have the same consequences. And, you know, it's okay that he doesn't, but, like, if we're going to compare characters and flesh them out, I think they spend a lot more time with the Two Fairy, the Red Dragon, in the remake, and a lot less time with Graham. Um, and that plays out very much so. And again, neither situation has a lot of screen time, but the screen time does matter when they when they use it in the original. So I, I got to point to the family in the original as a stronger portrayal of the family, even with what we know about the ending. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Maybe we should go there now, um, since we've talked about all our characters. Uh, that are important did, to the ending. Did you want to talk? I mean, did you want to talk at all about like the Kaitel and the other? We could, uh, but I feel like maybe because we're already talking about the family, uh, and the ending is really the family is pretty important for the yeah. remake ending. So maybe we could just go there and then come back to the other characters. That's since fair. Since they are really minor um, compared to. Okay. All right. So we're talking about the family. We keep talking about this ending. So let's just go there, Reggie. Let's talk about the endings and the differences. I'm going to start with the ending of the original. I so Manhunter. <laughs> this is one time where you should switch it. <laughs> the... <laughs> so in Manhunter, uh, pretty much they finally figured out who the killer is. It's this Dollar Hide character. They get an address. So Will and his SWAT team, they go to Dollar Hide's residence. Um, at this point, Dollar Hide's already kidnapped Reba. He's kind of just fucking with her at this point, blasting uh, god awful Inagata Devita <laughs> full blast. Iron Butterfly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> he's just, it's a little cheesy uh, to is. pick that song. I mean, 
though, to be fair. I, I, I mean, agree I agree with her, by the way. Why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> you sick bastard. <laughs> so he's playing that music, just kind of toying with her. And uh, Will is just like, as soon as they get to the location, like, first of all, it's pretty funny because they, they pull up there, they kill the lights, and then the other cop car that's with them crashes like into the <laughs> ravine or something. It's like, Jesus, there's some amateurs you guys brought with you. I'm all right, um, but he's hurt pretty bad, so we'll just stick back here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what? So, so we'll, <laughs> It's, it's weird. They got away for the SWAT. Will's like, screw that. I'm going. He runs. He sees that Reba's in danger. So he's oh, running. He's running. It's slow motion. We got fucking <laughs> Inagata DeVito. It's during that fucking long-ass instrumental break. And as soon as Will crashes through, we're back to the main riff. It couldn't get any... That's the cheesiest moment of the movie. But I'll allow it because I enjoyed the ride so far. Oh, so good. Um, and then Will, genius he is, what does he do? He jumps right into fucking Dollar High's arms. Dollar High, <laughs> much stronger, just throws him like a piece of paper, just slams him right into the fridge. Will is down and out, and then he, a lot of the condiments fall out, a lot of ketchup's down okay, there, so I'm thinking he's bleeding out, but no, it's just fucking ketchup. <laughs> and then Dollar High's like, well, shit, there's probably more cops coming. Gets a shotgun. Cops come. He's just like the Terminator at this point. <laughs> just taking him out. These guys, guys are flying. Work. It's pretty crazy. Uh, he goes back into the kitchen. He's going to take out Will now. But then Will pretty much just shoots him with these bullets. Yeah. Uh, he did miss Will for those condiments. So, you know, good. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, he shoots a bunch of like jars. <laughs> yeah, he has good shots when his other cops opponents Will. He, he just can't shoot him. So ultimately, Will is able to kill Dollarhide right there. He's uh, just kind of hugs Reba. He's like, I'm Will Graham. It's going to be okay. Killer's dead. We'll save Reba. And then we go back to the beach house. And I'm pretty sure Will didn't tell his family that he was there, that he kind of needed some time just to reset. But they show up anyway. And then he just tells them that, like, I'm okay. I'm okay. I needed some time, but I actually am okay. And then we go back to the turtles again. And and that's kind of how our movie ends with uh what what does it end with a uh, freeze frame <laughs> heartbeat heartbeat <laughs> listen to the heartbeat <laughs> and i don't know did you want to have any input on that <laughs> uh, yeah I'll, I'll give a little bit of input because i watched the director's cut i will say that there is a scene and it is completely unnecessary but it fleshes out the film there's a scene after he kills dollar hyde and before he goes to the beach house mm. where he's a little beat up it's like a rainy day and he goes to like the family that Dollar High was casing, the one that he kind of saves him from. And, like, they're like, oh, wow, you're that cop. Like, the wife answers the door, and then the husband shows her, hey, hey, like, and it's awkward. They're like, uh, you want anything? You want to, <laughs> like, come in? He's like, he's like, no, I just wanted to see you. And then, you know, lightning, and then he just, like, leaves. It's, it's so weird. Like, it, hmm. it, yeah. Good cut. Good cut. <laughs> it is a good cut, but like it, it does reinforce this idea of like, is Graham back or is he crazy? Right, right. So like you don't need it there at all. Like it's actually like completely sandwiched and pointless. But uh, you know, just fleshing that idea out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could just do exactly what they did in the theatrical cut, which was cut right through. I'll say this about the ending: the action ramps up in that film so much in a fun ridiculous way as you mentioned like as soon as he kind of understands like the padlock the lights the eyes like (laughs) 
they're on helicopters, he's screaming into, give me the driver's license. And it's like, <laughs> it's just so much crazy shit happening. Like he said, when the cop car crashes for no reason and the guy like smashes his head, like all this amped up 80s action, there is nothing more beautiful, like you said, than Inagada DeVita playing <laughs> William Peterson just smashing through that window. Like, it's a window. Shoot him. <laughs> yeah, he could have shot him, man. You, you know didn't have to where fucking he run. Is. <laughs> like, what are you doing, bro? Well, let me tell you something. I love it. <laughs> I love the random Terminator shit, like the collateral damage that just didn't need to happen. It's just a fun little romp. Um, just the idea that he's got, like, the killer's got the glass on Reba, and he's about to do it, and it's just, the whole thing is just a lot more fun, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous? Yes. <laughs> Freeze frame? Dumb. <laughs> but, like, I I like I like 80s cheese a bit, man. Like, the music really, for as cheesy as it was, it really started kind of hyping me up. I was like, let's go. Let's get, <laughs> let's get that sick son of a bitch. And, um... I had a lot of fun with it. Let's just put it that way. It's fun, for sure. I'll give you that. It's not... I don't know if it was entirely the ending I thought I wanted or anything like that. Probably wasn't. I mean, it's always hard when you have these great villains. It's like, how do you take them down? It's never as satisfying as, as I want it to be. So, like, just them kind of pretty much having a shootout yeah. at the end. Uh, it wasn't what I wanted. Uh, it's not how I wanted Dollar Hide to go. But I enjoyed it, and it... I guess the film bought enough good faith at that point yeah. where I was willing to go with whatever they had at this point. I think Will was a little stupid at the end, just jumping through that window. Yeah. But, you know, it made for a cool <laughs> moment with the music. So, uh, it's I, cheesy, not quite what I wanted. But overall, I'd say a fine ending. I mean, it was a weird movie. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you, you kind of needed that weird Inagata De Vita. And Inagata De Vita was chosen by Michael Mann because... Uh, there was like another serial killer. Like he would use that song. It's like for like as a connection between him and his victims. They were all mm. women. I forgot the serial killer's name, but like he would use that song um, to connect himself with uh, oh, wow. these women victims. That's why he chose that song. Interesting. It, it does seem a little out of place because the whole time we have like very it's very synth heavy mm-hmm. the the score for the soundtrack. And every time it's like a pop song, it's like very eighties like drums and synth all that stuff so when you hear like this old psychedelic rock song coming out of nowhere and it's like a very famous one so that that's that's kind of what irked me about it it's like this song i've already heard before like i didn't mind the heartbeat i didn't mind the song when uh he saw reba kissing the guy because i had never heard these songs in a movie before but like and i got it to vita it's like all right (laughs) it's got a little cheesy here but overall i was fine with the ending yeah i I agree it's um it's a tonal shift like you said the goodwill was there and like Actually, like, at that point, I was kind of okay with, like, the palate cleanser of just, like, <laughs> just, like, fuck it, we're going in. Like, I thought, <laughs> I thought it was a lot of fun. To your point, like, again, totally does it make sense. Like, you have, you have this kind of, like, plotting sort of slow burn, you know, these back and forth conversations with, like, this really smart lector guy. And then just at the end, I don't care. I'm going to yeah. jump through a window. <laughs> and again, like. From a policing standpoint, like, he would have a lot of questions to answer for because two cops basically died because he, like, threw caution to the wind. Maybe three because of the guy in the car for some reason. <laughs> but, like, um, no, I, look, I, I liked it. It definitely showed its uh, its age in that moment, the movie. But uh, I thought it was fine. And, I, and like you said, In the God Davida was a little too on the nose. 
But I did appreciate just how menacing it was because it reminded me of the uh, lunch scene again. Like, the fact that she's in the house, she doesn't know what's going on and where he is, mm-hmm. and he's just really messing with her psychologically. I found that to be in line with what I expect from the character. So I was okay with the ending. It seemed to me like the villain stayed smart and the cops got dumb. Mm-hmm. And I was okay with that. Yeah, I guess that's probably uh, what my problem was. It was like, because we had been seeing Will Graham, like this very smart, very meticulous person, just like very logical person. And then all of a sudden just, yeah, fuck all that shit. I got to run through this glass, man. Yeah. So it's just like, what are you doing, man? And then even... I guess to a point, uh, or even our killer, who just seems like very methodical, just like, just like, fuck it, I'm just getting a shotgun and just killing everybody. Right. So, uh, yeah, it definitely just seemed like, where did all this action come from, um, from this movie that was like, very like, just like, intellectually driven, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's just like this brawl out, or shootout at the end. So, it was weird, but I'll go, I'll go with it. Yeah. Now, the remake. The remake. <laughs> the remake. So... You get sort of a similar scene where uh, the other co-worker is taking Reba home, and he's about to go on vacation, and he's like, you know, you might want to avoid that Dollar Hide guy since he's so, like, emotional. And he's, he's really trying to, like, hit on her. He definitely wants, to, <laughs> wants there to be a thing there. And uh, Ralph Fiennes basically gets furious, not in the same way he doesn't, like, rip up his interior of his van, but he's, he's mad. He shoots the guy, which, again... When you talk about tonal shift as well, I think starting in the Brooklyn Museum to this point, tonally, the movie, to me, is starting to do some of the same things as the first film, which is like, why is he shooting people in broad daylight? I mean, it's not broad daylight, but like, why are you just on the front porch shooting a guy? Like, that doesn't Mm -hmm. fit your character, you know? Mm -hmm. I I just wasn't sure what changed for him in that moment. Um, Whereas, like, in the original, it was very obvious that he went nuts, more or less. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the next next scene, you have Reba in the house, and, like, he, you know, he wakes her up, and we're back in the Dolor Hyde estate, and he's rambling about... Were you able to follow this anyway? Like, uh, his ramble about the... Uh, he'll hear the, us. He'll hear us? I don't know, because, like, is, is there a red dragon upstairs? Is he the red dragon? I'm not exactly sure, because um, he had a painting like that upstairs, too, but we didn't see him eat that one, right. so is the painting control that he has i see this is where it just gets confusing because these voices that he's hearing he's like i think um well i read that uh there actually was like a voice uh frank langela frank langela i think is the actor's name actually did some voiceovers and uh brett ratner just took them out uh, at the last minute so maybe that would have made it a little more clear uh what he was doing and who he was talking to um but that's what we got I think that's a good cut because I think that would have sucked. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it. it's weird because Reba's still kind of there. You know, like, as much as menacing as, as he is, she still is kind of, like, holding out hope because she enjoyed their interaction. She likes him, mm-hmm. and she's scaring. I mean, he's scaring her. And for what we know as the people that have been following this kind of, like, serial killer story, we know that she should be afraid and she really shouldn't be trying to interact with this guy anymore. And then just kind of go, like I said, it goes into crazy town. It's like, all right, he's worried about the voice upstairs. So he starts to burn the house down and he like, let's just get to it. He, it's a fake out <laughs> ending. He shoots himself mm-hmm. as the house is burning down 
and Reba's like, holy shit, the house is on fire. How, how can I get out? She feels the body and realizes that he is shot. And, I mean, more or less just kind of like escapes on her own and the cops show up a little too late, mm-hmm. more or less. But that's not what really happened because that body was the co-worker he just shot in the other scene, mm-hmm. which we find out minutes later in, in the movie. I, I don't know. Like, I just... Even trying to describe this, like, I think it's starting to <laughs> bug me. Like, I mean, I feel like I'm rambling, but basically what happened is what happened. Like, he got mad, shot the other guy, kidnapped her, woke her up in the house, started to burn the house down because the painting was still upstairs and he's still hearing voices. And he says the only way they can be free is if he shoots her and he shoots himself. That's not what happens. He shoots seemingly himself, but it turns out it's a co-worker and now the killer's still on the loose. You want to try to take it from there because I, I yeah I, I, <laughs> sure <I'm... laughs> you did you did a fine job I guess at that point then like Will just like introduces himself to Reba and all that stuff at the hospital and then Will's also given the book that was in the safe because it was in a safe it didn't burn down so Will gets this book and then it's like some time has passed also put on a side note that coworker said he was going on vacation for a week so that's why nobody knew he was missing yep. anyways uh, so he's back at his beach house with this family just talking he's, he's saying that he read the book uh, the journal and uh, he does feel bad for the guy because uh because he had a shitty life sure humanize him whatever and then uh he's like wondering where his son is i'm skipping some stuff but <laughs> he's wondering where his son is and uh then he notices a broken mirror and then we start seeing a lot more broken mirrors and so we know that uh, Dollar Hyde is alive in there. And then I think uh, somebody gets uh, informed that the bones are not really Dollar Hyde's, that, that they are the co-workers and nobody knew it was him because uh, yeah, yeah, we, because uh, he was away on vacation. We, so, we didn't talk pretty, about the character yet. That was Harvey Keitel got yeah. the call. We'll get to that because mm-hmm. he's really a minor character. Anyways, uh, so he's, he finds uh, the killer. He's got his son. And then uh, he sees his son has peed himself. So he does the, there's some psychology stuff here. He remembers what he read in that journal. So he turns it on his son and he kind of berates him the same way that a young Dollar High was berated by his mother. And this throws Dollar Hyde off guard. And then the kid's able to get free. A little scuffle ensues. And I don't exactly remember what happens. A door closes. And then uh, kind of Dollar High's kind of gotten away. But then Molly comes in the house. And then, I don't know, he just waits looking at her feet like through the bottom of the door and then he sees dollar head come out tells her to duck it's, it's kind of a cool thing that happens it's just a little shootout through like a door nobody could see if it's just firing blindly both guys get shot both are injured and then ultimately like molly goes to check on graham he's okay but then dollar Hyde's still alive she gets the gun she's the one that kills our serial killer not our hero his wife and pretty much after that i think movie ends right yeah so oh no 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 i'm sorry no the movie does not end there we get a little ps scene here will's on his boat and he's got a letter or, or maybe phone call i don't know something from dr lecter just telling him like good job will you you did it and how uh, did it feel <laughs> how does it feel to have killed and whatever i don't know and then that's where we get a little teaser um the doctor comes in he says the other doctor not dr lecter <laughs> I forgot his name. Dr. Chilton, I think, actually. Uh, he comes in. He's like, oh, there's a young uh, lady from the FBI here to see you. Uh, she's very young, very pretty. Uh, but I told, I'll tell you, you don't want to see her. And then that's, you know, a little teaser for Sons of the Lambs. So I guess we're led to believe this happens right before 
the uh or this is happening maybe during the buffalo bill thing yeah dude we got a real serial killer problem in this country <laughs> so that's yeah. how it ends uh like i said before the movie starts with hannibal and of course it ends with hannibal because that's pretty much why you're here right <laughs> yeah you want to see this hannibal character that's why we made this remake right so you can see hannibal all right so that that's the details of uh the ending and the remake where do you want to start unpacking that i hate fake outs <laughs> i hate fake outs man Let, let's put it this way what we were kind of getting at before with like the love interest and stuff like that things start to shift again like and the problem is like this remake because all this groundwork is laid out and it's well done and we have high expectations for a hannibal movie with anthony hopkins in it some of these tonal shifts whereas in the 80s movie i'm like ah look at that being all 80s now that's <laughs> And this, I just start getting confused because I'm like, when did everyone get dumb? You know, like, everyone was really smart a couple minutes ago. And now that we're going to the Brooklyn Museum and hitting people over the head and shooting guys and, you know, with no cover and burning down the house and then swapping bodies and no one noticed. Like, it just, it just felt a little strange. I guess apparently it's, like, more in line with uh, the actual book itself. But, um, I don't know, like... All the good that came from that scene just felt undercut by the fact that we didn't flesh out the white. So I don't care if Mary Louise Parker mm-hmm. shot Dollar Hyde. I don't really care. I guess it's cool that Ed Norton got the book and he was able to use that information against the killer to, like, save his son. I mean, you know, kind of a harsh scene. He has to be mean to his son to save mm-hmm. his life. But, like, I don't know. The whole thing just starts to feel a little, I don't know, just a little pointless to me, you know, like. The killer shows up and, you know, he's looking for his gun and the guy's outside and he's looking under the, the door and the feet. And I'm just like, I, I don't know how we really got here. You know, like <laughs> it just felt a little pointless to me. But, you know, it wasn't the worst thing that ever happened. I just uh, I felt like the tonal shift. I had a different reaction to the tonal shift in the remake because I think I was holding it to a higher standard than the uh, than the original. So that's mostly what I have to say about that. I, I just don't really like fake out endings. Generally. Yeah, I I wholly agree with you. I the fake outs, not really a big fan of them. Yeah, it would have been a more impactful ending in the remake if we had spent time with the family at all. If it was the like I said before, if it was the wife from the original, if it was the kid from the original that they're in danger, I care about those people. Yep. I don't care about this family in the remake. I mean, Mary Louise Parker, yeah, great actress totally underutilized in this movie and uh give her the kill i don't know if that happened in the book but i mean i get it like we did we did like one thing of target practice with her like kind of in the middle of the movie when they had to relocate them and then we're making her the killer of dollar hide um i don't know it left me wanting more for sure even her reaction because she is such a good actress like her visceral reaction to having like taken a life was very well done from an acting standpoint she's invisible like agony about what has just happened still don't care (laughs) i I still don't care and um that that's a bit unfortunate you know it again like 80s cheese is 80s cheese and then this ed norton on the ground after taking way way too many bullets even hannibal at the beginning of the movie was shot so many times like why is he alive i'm not too sure Mm -hmm. like ed norton shouldn't be alive either and he's like shoot him shoot him it's just like (laughs) all right like i guess you needed him to tell you to, like, 
make sure it's done, you know? I don't know. A very solid foundation that just kind of, like, the ending, like you mentioned, left a lot to be desired. It wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen, but I just, I was kind of over it at that point because I didn't really care about the family. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't the worst ending. It was an okay ending, uh, but, like, because we don't really know the family in the remake, uh, it just doesn't have the impact it would if it was the family from the original. Mm-hmm. That would have been, like, that would have freaked me out if it was that yeah. family. I would have been so fucking nervous for them. But I don't know these people, so I kind of, it kind of sucks. It's like, you have this hero, and then just like, well, he's not going to do it. It's going to be her that we barely saw in the movie. Yeah. You know, it's like, maybe if you flushed her out. If it was the wife from the original, would have been totally fine with it. Right. This wife, right. I don't know who you. And you're not, you're not even talking about a lot of screen time. You're talking about like maybe an extra minute of screen time, and yeah. like, I care. Yeah. Yeah. So those, like, those are the endings. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, of course, a little bit of fan service. I mean, like you said, people are here for Anthony Hopkins mm-hmm. to an extent. So it's cool. It's like, oh, who? what's her name? I bet it's Clarice. Like, that was <laughs> It was actually a letter, by the way, that he, uh, that Hannibal had given him because Will reads the letter, balls it up, and throws it into the ocean because he's a ah. litterer. Because <laughs> he didn't learn any lessons. He's still going to be a jerk. <laughs> yeah. But like you said, those are the endings. You know, they, neither of them were fantastic endings, but you know, they they got the job done. Yeah, I guess choosing, I'd have to go with the original. Oh, same. Just thing. because, uh, yeah, I I do hate fake outs, and like I didn't care about those people. I didn't care about the family. So um, I was just really happy <laughs> that he was back with his family at the end of the original. Yeah. But I didn't really care so much at the end of the remake. I, so, honestly, too, I really didn't care about will either to be honest because he's a very like i said norton's norton's a good actor but it's a very straightforward character it's like hmm. he's a bit of a the term i like to use he's a bit of a boy scout and it's just like okay mm-hmm. like the other guy was so conflicted i was nervous about his well-being uh more so than uh this other Graham because the other Graham felt yeah. like he was going to be fine anyway like even in that scene where his family got attacked. I was like, oh, maybe they'll kill him. Maybe they won't. But it, it never felt like he was in any real danger uh, throughout the film. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I got nothing really else to say about that. Um, we do have some minor characters we could just talk about sure. a little bit because there are some differences there. All right. So let's start with Jack Crawford. Uh, he's the guy that brings Will back once he's out. Pull him back in. He's the guy that pulls him back in, Reggie. Yeah. So we have Dennis Farina. In Manhunter and Harvey Keitel in the remake. Yes, Harvey Keitel's in this movie. We barely talked about him. <laughs> um, I think you kind of said this before, so I'll just start with it. Lecter gets a lot more to do, so that takes away from a lot of the, the char- other characters. Um, so Jack Crawford in the remake for sure gets a lot less to do because Will's talking more with Hannibal. Yeah, like you mentioned, Farina, when he says that, he, he feels kind of like guilty about bringing him back in i actually believe it a bit more because like what we do see with will and his struggle we know how difficult it was for him to come out of retirement and uh dennis farina plays that really well it's like yeah they're friends but like also he's being used more mm-hmm. or less it's like look i don't really care what happens to you will but what i do care about is catching this killer quickly mm-hmm. and he even has a conversation with his own wife in the film, which is, again, saying the same thing. It's like, you're supposed to be his friend. We're like, well, how did you do that to him? Mm-hmm. And 
we understand his his motivation a little bit more. Uh, we don't really need him that fleshed out, but he's he's in so many more scenes. Mm-hmm. Even if he's not doing anything, just him being around. It's like I'll tell you when I've had enough, or like all that yeah. stuff. Like it does ultimately matter, like their relationship. So he's got more to do. Whereas Harvey Keitel to me, I just he's in the I movie, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, other than him asking him to get involved. I really don't even remember much outside of that. They they have the same kind of fight about, like, uh, you brought me into this, so I'm going to do what it takes. You know, Graham tells him that, but, like, it, it's not it's not as impactful in the remake. And it doesn't really matter if Harvey Keitel was there or not in, in the uh, Red Dragon. Yeah, I barely remember Harvey Keitel uh, in Red Dragon. I was just like, all his good stuff really went to Hannibal. And, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you know... You do want more Hannibal in your movie, uh, but uh, Jack Crawford's still a pretty important character. And Dennis Farina, he does a really great job, too, to help us be more like in awe of Will Graham in the process. There's this one great scene in the Manhunter when uh, Will's just watching the videotapes, and he's just like, so you know the dog, even though he didn't have a collar. You knew the cat, even though he didn't have a collar. And you brought the deadbolt. Why did you, why'd you bring that? And he's just like putting together these pieces. And you just see like Dennis Farina's reaction. He's just like, Watching the wheels turn yeah. in Will's head, it, it it's it's simple, but it's really effective because like he's just blown away by like all these connections that Will is able to make in that instance, just from just like these minor details. He's like, wait a minute, he knows it because he's watched the videos. So check the video t- company. He's like, well, the one video is from here, but the other video is from here. Well, oh, they would have went out to somebody. Lift the label. Where's that from? I know it. And then like it's it's kind of cheesy. Will's kind of got his hand up to the window, like he's kind of getting it from the universe or something, yeah. but. After all that whole scene, like, Dennis Farina's just like, what the fuck just happened? How did you do that? <laughs> so, you know, not the best character, but he does a lot to really service Will and the whole process of, like, getting into the mindset of a serial killer. I, I agree. really he's great. A, he's a supporting character. I mean, yeah. the scene when they're going to, going to uh, take in the Red Dragon, Dennis Farina says, well, you're not going to need that gun. SWAT's going to handle it. And, mm-hmm. like, it ramps up the tension and makes you understand that the way Will is acting is not rational, mm-hmm. logical at all. It's like, hey, Will, I don't know why you're getting all jazzed up because <laughs> you did your part. Your part was to figure out who it was and where he is. Everything else is leave it back to us. Like, that's the only mm-hmm. reason I even got you involved. Like you said, no small moments. It makes a huge difference. So, I mean, Dennis Farina definitely, because he's just in more scenes, and like you say, it's not even that saying words. It's just his reactions. They go a long way in the movie. I think you're 100% right about that. So I, I definitely know why he's in the movie. I'm not sure I know why Harvey Cattell's in the movie. Yeah. Which, to your point, Crawford is an important character. So what, mm-hmm. what happened? Yeah, he's very important in the first Silence of the Lambs movie. Uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, brought in Hannibal. You got to give him more scenes. He's going to take more of your stuff. Is that all right, Harvey? Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> That's honestly what I think what happened. I don't know if there are deleted scenes. I didn't look into it, but uh, yeah, Harvey Ketzel, pretty pointless. Dennis Farina, very serviceable, supporting Mm -hmm. character. The other character I just want to talk about a little bit is our Lowndes character, our journalist who's, uh, we hate, (laughs) because he took pictures of Will Graham after Lecter stabbed him. We have somebody returning from our Conan episode, Stephen Lang, (laughs) and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Big name, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I don't know, it's like, Again, just like Harvey Keitel, you bring this huge actor to play this role, and you don't really do anything with him. Yeah, yeah. Lang, to me, 
just had much more of an impact in the film in terms of the way he portrays Lowndes is like kind of like this kind of like wise guy, smart ass, mm -hmm. who like really gets under your skin. Whereas like Philip Seymour Hoffman, I didn't get that same take from mm -hmm. him. I really didn't get much of a beat on him at all. Other than I know Graham didn't like him, but like, I don't know, like that Lowndes in the original seems to be in a lot of ways one-upping our lead in a certain aspect. And it's kind of like fascinating because he plays this kind of like dick. You know, you're like, eh, you're not too worried at first when he gets, like, captured. Because, like, oh, yeah, he's kind of mm -hmm. getting his comeuppance. But, like, Lang's reaction to the killer. I think we talked a lot about that scene with uh, Tom Noonan and the, the stocking on his face and stuff like that. But, like, a lot of that is Stephen Lang's reaction. It's like, oh, God, no, 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 no. Like, what? <laughs> Please, not, not me, not me. <laughs> and, like, again, Seymour Hoffman does the same thing. I kind of don't like that whatever they put him on was sticky. <laughs> it was, like, super glue, which is, like fucked up as shit yeah. i was like oh this is a shittier scenario because stephen lang was just tied up but they they fell seymour hoffman stripped to his underwear yeah. fucking super vulnerable and then you're stuck with super glue it's like oh boy this ain't gonna end good yeah and like again it's a small thing but we even hear stephen lang in the moment reading the note yeah you know, it's, it's all these little things that make a huge difference and i, I don't know like stephen lang's lounge just felt more defined to me than uh mm. philip seymour hoffman what do you hear? What do you say? I, I love that. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, I'll agree with you. Stephen Lang's portrayal, uh, I thought, was the better of the two. Just going back to their characters, like you said, Stephen Lang's this kind of this arrogant asshole guy. Well, Phil Stephen Hoffman just comes off across kind of maybe he's a dick, but not really like I don't know above like anybody in the film. Like, he, he seems like he's pretty much like the lowest of the low here. It's great what Stephen Lang does because he comes across as this arrogant asshole, and then when he's kidnapped by our killer and then it's just like to see how pathetic he becomes it just makes gives the villain a little more credibility because right. like oh you made this guy fucking crack okay <laughs> so that's great and like you said having him read that note and we could see him in the terror when he has to read it as opposed to the remake where we just get like kind of this weird montage where we hear the recording while they're trying to solve stuff it's uh i don't know it, does, it definitely doesn't have the same impact yeah i just i just didn't get it like uh Spend some more time in that scene. I think, like you mentioned, because we had seen Ralph Fiennes before in the movie, and, like, you know, I guess they didn't think that they needed to spend as much time there. This, in the original, this is our introduction to the killer, mm, yeah. and it's with the backdrop of this guy who, who has been kind of shitty to our lead. Like, you know, he keeps writing all these articles about his mental health, and he takes photos of him when he's, like, not in a good position. So, like, he... he He's putting Will Graham's life and family in danger as well. That just comes across more in the original. So, like, when they have to, like, take the photo with each other, there's there's animosity mm -hmm. that just came across uh, much more organically in the original film. And then, like you said, even though we don't like him, hey, I wouldn't want that to happen to my worst enemy, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want... Uh, that's horrible to see. Horrible to see. And... You know, I just felt like they pulled less punches in that scene. Like, it's just so, so creepy. And Stephen Lang really, really, like, helps us know just how bad this killer is. And there's no real comparison here in my, in my book. Like, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of the greatest actors that ever lived. Yeah. And unfortunately, he's just underutilized once again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you said it enough there. Any other characters you want to talk about? Or I think we pretty much got them all. 
Not yeah, not really. I mean, there's some interactions with cops and his mental health, but like it, everyone that mattered, we talked about. Yeah. All right. I mean, that's all I really have for characters. I did want to just talk a little bit about the music, though. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> so we talked about this a little bit already, but let's talk about the soundtracks, Reggie. Like I said before, the Manhunter soundtrack, very synth-heavy soundtrack, and then we got some kind of occasion, like pretty '80s sort of, not really. Like pop songs, but you know they are pop songs, I guess. They're pop songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's it's interesting. It's an interesting choice to kind of uh, take a break from the action and just let this uh, these sort of pop songs just kind of take over. What do you think of that? You know, typically I feel like I would just I would just say what is going on with this music, but for some reason the way they framed everything up and the way it kind of ramped up because like as he was learning more about the situation and kind of getting more in the mind frame of the killer like the music started to kind of ramp up and like i don't know it it kind of works <laughs> it like <laughs> like really worked like uh you know you got this tiger thing and you're talking about the heartbeat and i'm thinking about the heartbeat of the tiger now and it's like i don't know why i liked it but i did you know it just felt it felt like it belonged there you know like even though nothing else in the film was gave you a foreshadowing that this type of music was going to play such a a big part of it but like by the end they just really like they used the score to their advantage and Mm -hmm. i think that it did help elevate the action and i think that's why i was okay with this more pop sort of twist because it's not like they took away from you know, this, like, psychological thriller. Because at this point, it stopped being that, and it started being, all right, solve the mystery, enough of that shit. It's time to, like, go crack some heads. And, like, it started working, man. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, I enjoyed it, too. It's just something about that synth soundtrack. It just, there's just, like, a sort of weird sense of, like, <laughs> unease because that, that, that synth just keeps going sometimes. And it's just, uh, I think it's really fits with this sort of psychological thriller there because it's just like as will's kind of like getting deeper into this world it's just like his mind is just not so secure or just like stable anymore so it just it really worked well with uh what was happening in the movie and i didn't mind those kind of musical breaks where okay the music's just going to kind of take over and we're just going to hear some songs like the song that's playing when he's discovering uh reba's like or he thinks reba's cheating on him it's it's a weird song. It's it's sort of catchy. Yeah. It's it's an interesting choice, but it works, and you just gotta give it to them that they made some good choices with the music there. I agree. I think the imagery made the music work as well. Like mm-hmm. as he got deeper into that killer's mind, like I said, it should be really really cheesy and campy. But like when you're seeing like the glow coming out of people's eyes and like. And all that stuff. When you see him jumping through the windows and stuff like that, like touching a tiger, like all this stuff, as I'm describing it, I'm like, does that make sense? Like, if, <laughs> if you told me I was watching a Hannibal movie and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, there's a guy who's going to jump through a window and then get in a shotgun fight. Some blind chick's going to touch a tiger. He's going to go to the beach with his family. Like, all this stuff, I'm like, I would say none of that should be in that movie. Take it out immediately. And it worked. It just started blending together in this really cool, clean way. And, uh, I wasn't even distracted by the music, which you think would have happened. I was just like, oh, yeah, this makes sense for what I'm seeing right now. <laughs> yeah, Kinda. it really does a good job of drawing you in. Sorry. Yeah. Like, if anything, it's just I just 
was more focused during this weird musical moments. I'm like, I need to know what's happening because this is so fucking weird, but I love it. Yeah. It, it like, I mean, to describe it, it really, it hyped me up, you know, like mm-hmm. I got excited that I was watching a movie again. It's not like I really had a moment where I was like bored or anything like that, mm-hmm. but this really like, things started to pick up quickly because I, we, were, we were, like I was saying before, we're past the point where you're trying to figure it out. We figured it out. Now it's go time, and the music was very much in line with that. And then we have the music in the remake, Danny Elfman's score. Serviceable score. Not as memorable as the Manhunter soundtrack, for sure. There weren't really any moments that sort of stuck out to me like they did in Manhunter. Like, that music really does sort of just take over in that yeah. original film. It doesn't... There's no moments like that in the remake. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of anything that jumps out at me. I mean, like you said, it's... It's what a good score typically does, which is it creates the ambiance and, and stuff like that, but it doesn't get in the way. Yeah. But, like, the original, I am still thinking about the heartbeat song. Like, it just, <laughs> it's in my head now. And, like, for some reason, it, that worked. Whereas, like, in a remake, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Mm. But because it, it was so kind of, it's a good score, but it's so run-of-the-mill kind of. Like, it's what mm-hmm. you would expect. I don't even think about it that much. But it, yeah. it wasn't bad at all. It was just, it was good. But. Exactly. It it wasn't bad, so it didn't get in the way, like you said. So absolutely fine score, but definitely not as memorable as what they did in Manhunter with that music. Yeah, which just sucks you in, man. It's really cool. I just gotta say that like a lot of what I like about that film are things that I typically don't like about movies. It's just they took some really interesting chances that could have like caused the whole thing to fall apart, but like all the parts kind of fit together. Um, like you mentioned, I mean, the slowest part really is when we do get into the love interest, but even that kind of, like, elevates the film as well. I, I just, I don't know. I found it all to be very interesting. I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah. Cool. All right, so we pretty much talked about all the characters, all the major differences, and the music. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, or should we just give our verdicts? I think we should give our verdicts. I mean, like, uh, it's a right. character-driven movie. We talked about characters. There you go. All right. It is time. Reggie, should the remake Red Dragon exist? Let's see. So, as I was saying before, for whatever reason, I don't know why I had in my mind that we were watching Hannibal Rising, uh, which is not good at all. I'll put it this way. When I saw Manhunter, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed that film. But I wasn't so blown out of the water that I was like, this is sacred ground and no one should, should mess with this. Red Dragon has exactly what you would expect. It's got a good cast. Ed Norton's a great actor. Anthony Hopkins is the Hannibal Lecter, even though Brian Cox did a great job. It's Anthony Hopkins all day. He's in the movie quite a bit, so we get to see him. There's some telegraphing and foreshadowing that's a little unneeded in some points, but overall, I mean, Ralph Fiennes does an incredible job of fleshing out this Red Dragon character, even though I have some disagreements with uh, how they do it. It fleshes out the story a lot more, and it follows, apparently, the original novel a lot more. I think it's a good remake. It's at least a good movie. I don't know if it's a great movie, but it's at least a good movie. And that remake should exist because I think it tells the story of Red Dragon more than the original, to be honest. So, And you definitely don't want to hit 80s movie notes in a 2000s remake. So I think, I think it was a good film, and I'm glad that it exists. There's pros and cons of both films. And both of them have a reason to exist. I'd seen the remake, like I said before, in the early 2000s, and I really liked it. I thought it was, you know, 
not the best entry in the I guess the Hannibal series, but I thought it was very serviceable. You know, like you said, good cast. You got Anthony Hopkins there. Ed Norton does a very serviceable job. Then I watched the original, and I realized they're it's pretty much doing the same thing beat for beat. Uh, they're not really doing anything new in the remake, and uh, actually made some choices that I kind of questioned. And I don't know. I'm going to actually disagree with you, Reggie. Ooh. I'm going to say Red Dragon should not exist. Ooh. It just follows the source material too closely, and it really didn't do anything to sort of make, you know, come into its own. It even follows some of the dialogue, like, verbatim. And I'm just like, oh, man, they really didn't try to, like, do anything new here. Honestly, you just did Manhunter again, and you just put Anthony Hopkins in it. It's kind of what you did. And uh, that's cool, but, you know, I think Manhunter is just good enough where it's like we didn't need the story told again because you pretty much tell it exactly the same way it's it, you just recast it that's it you didn't do anything new so uh i was pretty bored <laughs> watching that remake again and i don't know it, it just i wasn't sucked in like i was with manhunter even though i was like pretty sure i wouldn't get into manhunter because i'm pretty i was sure it had that 80s cheese but michael mann did it right and i don't know i just i don't think we need it again <laughs> You know, I, I, can, uh, I can hear you on that, because I'll put it this way. The villain is better mm-hmm. in the original. The lead is better than the mm-hmm. original. I mean, really, the only spot that you're not winning is Hannibal Lecter. But, I mean, it's Anthony Hopkins reprising a role that he's done before. So exactly. I, definitely get yeah. what you, I definitely get what you're saying. I think it falls in those different times where we've kind of uh, flip-flopped on our reviews mm-hmm. and... I, I'm falling into the camp of good enough. I definitely agree with you that Manhunter is the better film because it's just it's just more interesting, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all around. But uh, I think what puts the remake over the top for me is Ralph Fiennes' excellent portrayal and, like, him really diving into that character. If you take him out of the movie, I can't say say this at all. But they do make several missteps with him as well, so I can see your, your review. Yeah. Sticking to my guns, I think uh, the movie has some merit to exist, but I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that Manhunter is a superior film. Yeah, I mean, it's a good film. If Manhunter did not exist, I'd be like, oh, this is great. Yeah, this is a great entry in the Hannibal series, but Manhunter does exist, and we didn't do anything new. So yeah. to me, it just felt like it was just redundant, and it's like I didn't try anything new. Like, they could have just like changed a couple things more here or there, and you, you did the thing where you made the family, like, the the ending and you cut them out so it didn't matter it was just some dumb choices it didn't make sense they did eat a william blake painting that's right <laughs> so they did that <laughs> okay just uh going to that stuff like the dragon tattoo thing they were gonna do that in the original too but then they just ultimately decided not to do it they thought it looked a little silly so but i guess they, they did that did. and they were gonna call it red dragon but then the studio didn't like it because they thought it was too much like the kung fu movies coming out at the time mm. so people might think it was a kung fu movie so they went with manhunter which everybody kind of hated <laughs> including michael mann so i guess if you want a movie where it's named after the book <laughs> you can watch enjoy red dragon but like ultimately for me i just thought it's redundant and just like it's so stylized too manhunter there's a lot of like monochromatic shots where like everything's blue or everything's yeah. green just really stylized and really cool and do yourself a favor if you've only seen Red Dragon, people. Watch this original Manhunter. 100% agree. I mean, like you said, style, choices. I mean, even even if you don't stick to the script, I mean, 
it made sense because it fit the era. Like, it really did fit the 80s era, but, like, it's kind of, like, from a nostalgia standpoint, the best of that era. Like, kind of, like, the things we like about mm-hmm. that unique time in America. And, yeah, no, I mean, look, I can't argue with you. It's it's a superior film. It's shot really well. Um, even with their budget and, you know, kind of, quote-unquote, lack of star, star power relatively, it just holds its own. And, I, I mean, William Peterson is a joy to watch in that film. Mm-hmm. And Tom Noonan is one of the creepiest villains that I've seen portrayed in film. So, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. Great movie. All right. Well, that about concludes our <laughs> review of the two films. So what did you guys think, huh? Who'd you agree with? <laughs> Reggie or me? <laughs> Feel free to defend uh, Red Dragon. I, I, I liked Red Dragon when I first saw it. And then I thought I'd be fine with the remake, but it, I just didn't I do did. anything new. Like once I saw like the original, I was like, "Wow, you didn't do anything." <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, besides the basically queuing up the fan service to say, "Hey, Silence of the Lambs is yeah. next," you know, just yeah, I know, I I get it, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, maybe we should figure out what we're gonna do next then. That's a good idea. Western comedy thriller. We did Conan before, which is action. Hmm. That's a tough one. Um, I don't know. I know we we just did a thriller. I was thinking maybe we could go to horror. That's not a bad idea. I mean, I saw a remake available on Amazon Prime. Uh, the new Child's Play is available on Amazon. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's do a little bit of Child's Play, huh? Little Chucky. Yeah, I got no problem with that. (laughs) All right, so Child's Play it is for the next episode. Excellent. I'm Dan Bulick. You can reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all at Retro vs. Remake. If you're listening to us on iTunes, if you can give us a five-star review or a great comment, we greatly appreciate that. You can also check us out on Spotify. If you're watching on YouTube, definitely leave us a comment below. Let us know what you thought. Um really like those comments there yeah and i'm reggie parker you can find me on twitter and all that at rp comedy but definitely focus more on the retro versus remake brand as always any comments any reviews we're taking it all in um building just a a better show and i think we're really starting to hit our stride i'm I'm enjoying these conversations all right well i'm dan bulek i'm reggie parker this has been another episode of retro Retro versus versus remake. remake Don't know how that one came out. That was the best one yet. (laughs) No doubt.